0: Well, when Colton Burpo was three years old, his appendix burst and he was rushed to the hospital and went through surgery. There were no complications. There was nothing out of the ordinary until he woke up and uh, little three-year-old Colton claimed that during that time he had died and gone to heaven, that he had met Jesus. Jesus had blue eyes, uh, that he had met John the Baptist and Samson, that the people in heaven had wings. Uh, like the angels, and his father, who was a pastor, believed him. Uh, the reason his father and mother believed him was because one of the people that he said he met in heaven was a little girl who looked just like him. It must have been his sister, and because they reasoned, Carlton didn't know that his mother had miscarried, and sure enough, they would have been Uh, A soul in heaven, um, that was his sister. Because he couldn't have known that, they'd never told him, that must be a real experience, a real revelation that he had. And so Colton's dad, Todd Burpo, turned that testimony into a book in 2010 that became a New York Times bestseller. It sold over 10 million copies. In 2014, it was turned into a movie uh, named after the book, Heaven is for Real. The movie made... One hundred and four million dollars. What do we do with claims like that? Is heaven for real? Yes. Is it for real because a three-year-old said so? Or is there maybe a more compelling evidence that we have at our disposal? Patricia Bosselman, the vice president of marketing at Barnes & Noble bookstore chain, said... When you buy the religion subject, you're presented with many stories about heaven, personal experiences about the afterlife. But what was unusual about this book was that it was the story of a little boy. It deactivated some of the cynicism that can go along with adults capitalizing on their experiences, unquote. In other words, we at Barnes Noble don't usually put out books That people have claimed to have gone to heaven because people are cynical. They think that the person's lying because they're capitalizing. They're making money out of their story. But a little three-year-old isn't thinking that way. And so that's what got people to buy the book. This came out at a time uh, around 2010... ...where it was very popular to have these books. People claiming to go to hell for 90 minutes, go to heaven for 90 minutes. Various uh, visits and trips there. Alex Malarkey, the 11-year-old, claimed the same thing at the same time. The boy who came back from heaven was his book... Um, In fact, uh, my literary agent contacted me and said that there was a publisher interested in publishing uh, a story they were trying to break into the more conservative Christian market. They saw that conservative Christians weren't buying these books. And so they wanted a credible Christian author to claim that they'd been to hell. She tried to explain to them, Christians don't go to hell. And so, by definition, you're not going to find a credible Christian author. So we kind of pitched the idea uh, of the rich man and Lazarus and framing the story that way, uh, and that's what led to the book A Visitor's Guide to Hell. Just to be clear, um, if you've not read the book, I haven't been to hell, and I didn't claim that in the book. But it just shows you that the the marketing power of those stories and the the desire uh, for readers and therefore publishers to make money out of these... Uh, supernatural experiences. Also around the same time, there were a lot of claims of people saying that they had got direct revelation from God of various things. Uh, Very famously, uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll that started the wildly successful Mars Hill uh, franchise of churches throughout the United States and really the world, the multi-site campus. He claimed that the reason he did that was he went into ministry because he heard the audible voice of God speak to him and tell him to do four things. Uh, One was to study the Bible and preach it. Two was to plant churches. Three was to train men. And four was to marry Grace, uh, the pastor's daughter. And so nobody involved had much choice except to obey God. And that's what started that. Well, of course, fast forward a few years, and uh, he was disqualified as a leader from that church movement. And the whole movement has kind of dissipated. What happened to the audible voice of God? When he came to South Africa, I stood in line to ask him that very question. Um, A friend of mine from my church as well, we asked him together, we don't believe that God speaks audibly. How how do you prove that that happened? And he said, what do you want me to say? So I just asked, well, what did it sound like? He said it sounded authoritative. Authoritative. And then kind of moved us on, and the next people in line got to speak to him. I wanted to know what accent God uses. And a lot of people think that they speak in real English. But South Africans know that y'all have accents, we don't. And I wanted to know if God speaks American or South African. But anyway, there's this question that has come because people, many people claim to hear the voice of God. Benny Hinn, Oral Roberts, Miles Monroe, Copeland, uh, Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagan. And of course, Mark Driscoll and many others. So this morning, what I want to do is bring some clarity to this question. What do we do with claims that God is speaking audibly, claims that God has given visions, claims that God is taking people to heaven and showing them what heaven or hell is like? What do we do with that? And since we are kind of between sermon series, we just finished going through Philippians verse by verse. We're about to go into the book of Ruth starting next week. Lord willing, for a few weeks, and then we'll go into 1 Peter after that. So I just wanted to take this one Sunday to help equip us uh, f- from a sermon that is going to springboard off of what we've been learning on our Wednesday services. So um, if you were here on Wednesday, you heard the sermon on the Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. And I said, come back Sunday, and we'll round that out. So that's where we are today. Turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. This is a passage where the Apostle Peter is writing about an experience that he had on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we'll look at that passage in a little bit more depth later. You just heard it read by Pastor Will, uh, the Luke 9 version, uh, the the Matthew uh, 17 version. We're also going to look at the Luke 9 version of that. But For now, let me read for you 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a letter that the Apostle Peter in his older age is writing to uh, various churches to warn them about false teaching and false claims and error that is creeping into the first century church. Peter writes this in chapter 2. Well, verse 1 says, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves Swift destruction. So that's chapter 2. What he said just before this in chapter 1 is what we're going to focus on in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths... ...when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look this morning at three problems with mystical experiences, actually three problems with the claims at mystical experiences, so that you will rely on Scripture. I'm going to warn you up front that all three of these are going to sound like I'm just saying the same points from three different angles. And that's because I am. Um, the three problems with mystical experiences are experiences are unsure, untouchable and unverifiable. It all boils down to you can't trust them. That's the problem with them, is you can't trust them. Um, but we're going to hit them from three slightly different angles. So firstly, experiences are unsure. Look at verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So the first problem, the first major problem with a claim at a mystical experience or revelation coming from God, either audibly or through some sort of vision or whatever, is that we can't be sure it actually happened. It's not... Sure. It's not something you can stake your soul on. It's not something that you can gamble your eternity with because all you have, whether or not that happened, is someone's claim that it happened. He says here, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. The word myth refers to fiction, something that's not fact, something that's not true. And he said, we didn't follow those. Now, there's a number of ways false teachers get false teachings into the church and one of them is by making claims that people believe and so Peter is trying to equip his readers don't listen to the false teachers don't fall for their claims and here's why one of the issues is that some of these claims are myths they're fiction now where does this fiction come from where does this story this idea of a blue eyed Jesus in heaven come from well there's there's really only two possibilities Either, well, I mean, there's three. Either it happened, we're not sure about that yet, or the person is delusional. That means they had a delusion, they had a vision that happened in their own mind that just came from their own imagination and they believed it was real. Or thirdly, they're lying. So whenever anybody comes to me with any claim that is supernatural, I assume one of three things. Maybe it happened, maybe they're crazy, Maybe they're lying. Now, it might have happened. Let's just grant them that for now. They're not crazy. They're not lying. But I don't know that. And that's the problem with the mystical experience. It's just unsure. You just don't know. The the older I get and the longer I've been in ministry, the more I realize there are more crazy people out there than I ever knew. I just didn't know there were that many. Um... And I mean, I mean that sincerely. There's, there's a lot that goes on in our society, a lot of traumatic events, a lot of stress, a, a lot of abuse, a lot of uh, medication and alcohol. And there's, there's lots of things that temper with people's brains so that they can't think straight. And some of those people start hearing voices, start seeing things, and sometimes there's a complete break from reality and they become delusional. And so maybe that's what happened to this person. Or they could be lying. I mean, in the verse verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths. You see, this is not the myth. He's not talking about a myth that came from a delusion, he's talking about one that was manufactured, it was devised cleverly, deliberately you have to get your mind around the fact that there are people claiming to be Christians who deliberately lie about stuff for prestige, for attention, to get their way in churches, and often just to make money. Sell it as a a story. Now, why do Christians fall for this? Why, why is the Christian segment of the market more likely to fall for these things than other people? Do you know that the, the market research, the, the person that was helping Todd Burpo write his son's story, said that they wanted to leave out the detail that people in heaven had wings. Because everybody who knows the Bible knows that that's not true. That's, you don't get wings in heaven. In fact, the angels don't even have wings. Every time you see an angel, they look like a man, like a human. There's one creature in heaven described as having wings, and it is the cherubim that has six wings. So they knew that that part Bible believers aren't going to believe. So they wanted to just leave that detail out. But they were eventually convinced to leave it in and just hope that Christians would still buy the book and... 10 million people still bought it. And then they sold the movie rights as well. And people went to watch that as well. It almost seems like there's no level of gullibility that we are not vulnerable to. You can claim anything and say it was a vision and people will believe it. Christians will believe it. Unbelievers obviously don't. What is that? What makes us so gullible? Well, think about it. We are the segment of the population that believes with all of our heart that we serve a powerful God that can do anything. That he did these things in history. Parted the Red Sea. He gave visions. We believe in angels. We believe in prophecy. We believe in miracles. We believe in healings. We believe in the second coming. And we believe these things with all of our heart. So we are people primed to believe things that we haven't seen. After all, faith is not does not come by sight and so we're okay with that but what I want to equip you with is where do you draw the line how can we believe in the baby Jesus and the virgin birth but we don't believe in the Easter Bunny oh sorry I should have given a spoiler alert there for some of the kids those of us who don't believe in the Easter Bunny well the tooth fairy or I mean I'm gonna stop the list there but where do we draw the line with these claims There's a claim that somebody was uh, raised from the dead. There was a claim that somebody walked on water. And now there's a claim that somebody goes to heaven and comes back and hears the audible voice of God and someone else claims that. How do we know who's right and who's wrong? Well, we're going to learn this from Peter. Now, remember this. Peter actually did experience this. Verse 16 again. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This isn't secondhand. I saw this with my own eyes. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves, and it's emphatic in the Greek, we, I was there with these other two apostles, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were actually with him on the holy mountain. If you want a recap of that story, um, I know you just heard Pastor Will read it, but for those of you watching this on Facebook who didn't, uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 9. Wednesday night we had a sermon on, about what happened here, but I'm just going to remind you of what actually happened here. Luke chapter 9. Verse 28, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. We don't know which mountain, but a mountain. And as he was praying, Luke 9, 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. So Jesus' face started changing shape. Um, His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally in the Greek, his exodus. Moses was a punny guy. Um, He's talking to Jesus about his exodus from this world. And uh, verse 32, Now Peter and those who were with him, James and John, were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, an audible voice, saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And we also know from the testimony, he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's my chosen one, listen to him. It's the same thing that the voice said at Christ's baptism. So at the beginning of his earthly ministry, at the end of his earthly ministry, you have the book ends, this inclusio, of God stamping his approval on Christ in the beginning and in the end i'm happy with my son he's doing what i told him to do everything that he's claimed must be true because god himself is saying listen to him verse 36 and when the voice had spoken jesus was found alone end of the experience and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything they had seen you can go back to second peter it's interesting to me that they kept silent after that. Jesus repeatedly throughout the Gospels, we've been seeing on Wednesday nights, tells his disciples to not spread this part of the message yet. And then only after his death, resurrection, and at the ascension into heaven, he says, Now I'll go into the world and tell them everything. Jesus wanted the Gospel message to include the resurrection. Until the resurrection happened, these are just experiences, but nothing's actually been accomplished. So he told them, be quiet about it. After Jesus went to heaven, Peter preaches the first sermon in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. The one where 3,000 people get saved, and then he preaches again and 5,000 people get saved. This is the first preaching of the New Testament. This is the beginning of the church this is the first church and it's being born on the testimony of Peter that's why Jesus said you are the rock and on this rock I'm going to build my church this is Peter's message here is starting the church and he never mentions the voice now don't you think that's strange that in all the sermons we hear Throughout the book of Acts, the apostles never mention that they know this is true because they heard an audible voice telling them it's true. What he does refer to to prove that it's true is what? The resurrection, which was witnessed not just by him and two others. It was witnessed by over 500 people at one time and multiple times over those 40 days. That is a historically proven fact that they keep pointing back to. The whole gospel, the whole church is built on the miracle of the resurrection that was proven in history and was witnessed. That's what the Gospels are writing about, how the the body couldn't have been stolen because of the guards that were there and the story came because of the bribery and and, um, the ladies saw them and the the apostles saw them and then the 500 saw them and Jesus came into the room with the 100 and he ate the fish and there's all these proofs after the resurrection. That's what the Gospel is built on through the rest of the Bible. You never hear about this experience again except here that Peter's saying, we had this experience. But verse 19, we have something more sure. The prophetic word, f- more fully confirmed. Maybe your, your version says the more sure word. It's that word sure that gives me such hope. There's something we have that's sure. Not a claim of an experience that someone else had, but we have this, this word of God. Peter's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, it's, I just can't get over what, like how significant it is that Peter never used this in his sermons. I mean, quite frankly, if I had seen Jesus transfigured in front of me, seen the glory of God, and heard the glory of God's voice and the actual audible voice of God, that would be my opening illustration for every sermon. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Thank you to you, visitors. I have heard the audible voice of God, so I know what I'm about to tell you is true. He never mentions this. Now, why would, after, you know, a year of me starting every sermon with, trust me, I've heard the voice of God, what kind of effect do you think that would have on you? You know, you bring a visitor. Like, wow, I've never heard these things. It's so amazing, and it must be true, because your pastor heard the voice of God. What are you asking the visitor to believe? The pastor and his claim that he had an experience. But what are you actually today hopefully asking your visitors to believe and asking your family to believe? And what I'm asking you to believe? The Bible. What the Bible says about Jesus. I can say whatever I want about Jesus and I can claim anything I want about Jesus and then I'm just asking you to believe me. You never have to believe anything I claim unless I can show it to you in Scripture. That's what Peter's saying. We have something more fully confirmed. We have the more sure word. Otherwise, you'd be asking people to put their faith in Peter and his testimony alone rather than the historically proven fact of the resurrection. Now, is the Bible more spectacular than an audible voice experience? Depends on how you look at it. It's no easy feat getting all of these authors over all of these centuries to write the same message with no mistakes and no contradictions. So it's pretty spectacular. But I understand that people are like, yeah, but the experience... But this is the thing. When it comes to your salvation, which is more important? The experience or surety? When it comes to salvation, the most important thing is I want to be sure. I want to be sure it actually happened. You might say, so you're telling me that what you see with your own eyes and hear with your own ears is not as trustworthy as the Bible? Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm telling you. Friends, I have seen with my own eyes the statue of liberty made invisible. I've seen David Copperfield walk through the Great Wall of China. I've seen him fly with my own eyes. I've seen him chop a woman in three and stick her back together like nothing even happened. Have you ever seen anything like that? I have. I mean, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. David Copperfield was way more popular before the internet. Now people figure out how he did all those things and just put it on the internet and it kind of ruins the show. But when I first saw the Statue of Liberty disappear, I was like, oh my goodness. That's real magic you know what they did, they actually—they just turned the audience around slowly but anyway, it was amazing my own eyes deceive me there's something more sure than the things you've experienced yourself and that's the Bible because if you are delusional and you are thinking things are real when they're not how do you know? you don't know and so maybe one day I think I've been through some experience I don't know so what I have to keep coming down to is my anchor to be anchored in truth Jesus said in John 17 verse 17 sanctify them in your truth your word is truth your word is truth now I know what you might be thinking you might be thinking well God did speak to some of these people I mean he spoke to Isaiah he spoke to Peter Paul Moses. And that's true. But friends, it's precisely because he spoke to these people that he doesn't need to keep speaking. That's why he spoke to them. I'm not saying he can't speak audibly. I'm saying he doesn't need to once he's done it. He didn't give the 613 laws to Isaiah and then again to Peter and then again to Paul. Why? Because he had already given them to Moses. And Moses wrote them down. And this is the book that Peter's saying is more sure than your experience. The stuff that's already in there. Let me give you three passages that just prove that. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. see... We're not saying these things didn't happen. This revelation was there long ago in many ways, in many different visions and angels and audible and inspiration, all these different things. But now the last revelation was the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the books that write about that and explain that. That's what we now have. Jude uh, verse 3 says, I'm appealing to you to contend to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith doesn't have to keep getting upgraded and edited and improved upon for every new generation. Well, now we've got issues that they didn't have then and now we live in this kind of democracy and we've got these types of technologies. No. The faith was once for all delivered to the saints and in it are all things pertaining to life and godliness. The book of Revelation ends with this, Revelation 22:18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book... If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Yes, there's been revelation and then the last living apostle, the last person on earth who was able to do miracles, who had seen Jesus uh, resurrected and had been with him from the beginning, that person, John, writes the last book with the last revelation, including the fact that heaven is for real. And at the end he says, now stop writing. And then he dies. You know, when people claim to hear the voice of God, what they're doing is they're unwittingly denigrating Scripture. They don't mean to do that. But what they're saying is that God's Word is sufficient for most things for life and godliness. But not all things. Because in my case, my decision about my work, whether I should have bought that boat, or whether I should have married this girl, in my case, I needed more direct revelation. Because what I was doing is really important. And then you're saying, you know, the Bible wasn't enough for that. There's a... There's an arrogance that comes with that, unfortunately, isn't there? I mean, these people may be humble people and they don't realize that, but what they're saying is what I'm going through is so important that I need special revelation that the rest of the church isn't privy to. And what I find fascinating about that is, very often, it's about pretty trivial issues that people are claiming to get revelation on. I mean, honestly, I would find my line of work would really benefit from being able to just have direct revelation from God. There's a number of times in my life. I mean, I'm I'm trying with all my heart to serve the Lord and serve His people, and, and sometimes I just need to know, Lord, like, what does this passage mean? Or what happens at this part of the tribulation that I don't understand? Or... In this counseling situation, who's telling the truth here? Or did this really happen? Or what should we do with this money? Or is this missionary using the money well? Or or should we rather give it to someone else? There's like lots of things that that are important kind of for kingdom work. And I'm like just bashing my head on my desk, praying to the Lord for wisdom, searching the scriptures. And you come along and say, yeah, the reason I bought a boat is because God told me to. Well, lucky you. I wish he would tell me how to lead his people. You know? Strange the things people claim. So, experiences are unsure. That's the first problem. The second one is that experiences are untouchable. And what I mean by that is that they're not objective. They are subjective. L- look at verse 20 again. Uh, look at verse 20. Uh, knowing this, first of all, Peter says that no prophecy of Scripture, the more sure word of Scripture, comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy, unlike personal experience, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the doctrine of inspiration. The Spirit inspires the Scriptures. How? By carrying along the people who wrote them. These men with their education and their background and their vocabulary and all these things, I mean, you can read the Greek of Second Peter and it's very, very different from the Greek of John, for example. They had different levels of competency with language and they knew different things and they had different terminology. But throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit used these people and like, like a, a, a sailboat with the wind, the Spirit bore them along so that the end product is the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and so this is where scripture comes from it comes from God not from these people Uh, often you'll talk to unbelievers and say well I don't believe the Bible because it was written by men and, and men make mistakes no it wasn't men were the instruments but God was the author the Holy Spirit bore them along And so the problem with an experience is that it's not objective like the Scriptures. The Scriptures we can all study. I can tell you to turn to this chapter, and you can turn to the same chapter, look at the same verse. We all have the same words. We can go read commentaries of what um, godly men and women have written about these things for centuries. They all had the same Bible. They had the same Bible 500 years ago. They had the same Bible 2,000 years ago. What's so great about finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the the, the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament, they they were written 300 years before Jesus was even born. They're the same Old Testament you have in your lap. That's what made it such a great discovery because it kind of proved, oh, we've had it right all along. John MacArthur writes this. There are only two basic approaches to biblical truth. One is the historical objective approach which emphasizes God's action toward men and women as taught in Scripture. The other is the personal subjective approach which emphasizes the human experience of God. How should we build our theology? Should we go to the Bible or to the experiences of thousands of people? It's an important question because I've heard... I mean, I know in our circles it's maybe not as common, but in South Africa it's the most common um, denominational flavor in English Christianity in South Africa is one that claims these types of experiences happening most often. And so I bumped into this all the time, all the time. And one day a guy, even in my church, he was new and he came up afterwards and he asked for prayer, which is fine. All he had to do was say I really feel like I need prayer or I, I, you know, I, I believe the Lord wants me to get prayer about the situation, but instead he said this, "Um, I came because God told me audibly to come up for prayer. So, you know, if you say that to me, that's like sick him to a dog. I mean, I'm like, okay, hold on. We're going to pray for you. Don't worry. I will definitely pray for you. Let's just talk about this audibly. I said to him, what do you mean God spoke to you audibly? He said, I was sitting in my pew and I heard this voice behind me saying, go up for prayer. And I said, I know the guy who was sitting behind you. I think it was him. And which is more likely, that the guy sitting behind you tells you to go up for prayer or that God spoke to you? I didn't say that part to him. I'm asking you. So I say, how do you know it wasn't the guy behind you? He had never been asked that. Nobody had ever challenged his, God told me before. And he said, I just knew it was God. Okay, well now, now suddenly this just transfers from objective to subjective and it's untouchable now. Well, if you just know something to be true, I can't question it anymore, right? It's out of my... Okay, well, you know it's to be true. Anything else I do is calling you a liar or crazy. So, I, I mean, I just prayed for the guy. <laughs> I won't tell you what I prayed. I prayed that he would hear the sermon. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, a neighbor of mine once told me, you know, Kim and I were kind of like trying to disciple this couple that lived next to us in California. And he had moved to California. And he said, I moved here because God told me to be an actor. And God told me audibly to come to California and to not work, not do any other job until I was an actor. And so his wife went out every day and worked a full-time job while he stayed home watching movies all day as research. And so, eventually, we go and confront him on this and we, you know, just lovingly say, look, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's acting worse than an unbeliever. That's what the Bible says. And you guys are struggling financially and your wife's working all day and you're watching movies and we just don't think that's right. It's a bad witness. And before he could even say anything, she stepped up and said, no, 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 God spoke to him, so that's what we need to do. It's just untouchable. You can't argue with that. I ask, does God ever speak to you audibly? No, just through him. That's convenient. I'm going to give a men's class. This is how to, how to have a marriage. Just tell your wife God speaks to you and tells her what to do. Don't worry, he won't speak to her. I mean, that's crazy talk. But I can't, you can't reason past that point. I just came to you with a scripture. You came to me with, well, God told me. And your wife says, well, God told him. And it's like, okay. These experiences are untouchable. The third problem is that these experiences are unverifiable. i saying that's what we just said. I know, I, I warned you. One is that it's unsure. So you can't like stake your... Salvation on it. Secondly, it's untouchable. It's subjective. It's produced by the will of man. It's open to your own interpretation. We can't all study it the same way. And thirdly, experiences are unverifiable. In other words, they're fakeable. Because remember in verse 16, he called them cleverly devised myths. In verse 19, he says, We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. So Peter's saying, I actually did have an experience, not a cleverly devised myth, but an experience, and yet I'm not expecting you to believe in that. I'm not expecting you to accept that experience. What I am expecting you to do is pay attention to the Scriptures. Because I could have faked what I did, but we can't fake the Scriptures. Colossians 2.18 says, Let no one disqualify you. And then there's a list of various mystical claims going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Puffed up without reason. So people who go on about these visions are puffed up. That means arrogant. That means conceited. They think more highly of themselves. What is it about your life that is so important that instead of revealing something explicit, to people who are writing commentaries and shepherding flocks and teaching pastors and uh, moving to the mission field and have to learn other languages and have to make decisions when they get there. They don't get these revelations, but you do about what college to go to. What is it about you that makes you so important? You're like, well, you, you know, well, Paul saw a vision on the way to Damascus. Yeah, he's Paul. He started, you know, the European church. What did you do with your boat? I keep using the boat as an example because somebody actually told me that once. I said, I don't know if that's a wise financial decision. Well, God, God told me. I, I agree with you, but God told me to do it. Dope. I met a lady when I was living and working in Israel. This lady who was working with me, she had left her family, her job, and her entire life in the United States and moved to Israel and was working there um, cleaning... As a cleaner in the hotel, and she was desperately poor, she was destitute, and she needed everyone else to help her financially. And so one day I asked her, I said, Why did you do this if there was no money to support this plan? And she said, I, God told me to. So I said, What do you mean, God told me? God spoke to me and told me I needed to go to Israel. And so, yes, I left my family and my job and everything, and everyone thinks I'm crazy. But, God told me to. I mean, it's like people just decide what they want to do and then they slap this, God told me to, so you leave them alone. And this is is what happens. People say, well, aren't you putting God in a box? When I've had these discussions with people, they say to me, you're putting God in a box. You're saying God couldn't do that. Who are you to say that God can't speak to that person to tell them to go and do this thing? And it took me a while before I had a response that made sense, but this is what I would commend to you. If somebody says, are you putting God in a box, you should come back and say, can God lie? What's any Christian who knows the Bible going to say to that question? Can God lie? No. Paul calls him in the book of Titus the God who cannot lie. So you're just putting God in a box. You just told me there's something God can't do. Well, yeah, because it would be going against his attributes. I mean, it's not insulting to say God can't lie if he told us he can't lie. In the same way, it's not insulting to tell God, I don't believe that there's external voices out there that I need to hear to live a Christian life when you told me in your Bible that I don't need those things. That's not insulting. If I say, you know, you said, well, God told me to do this, and I say, no, he didn't. Now it's just your word against mine. I'm not putting anyone in a box. I'm just going with what Peter's saying here. Look, I actually heard his voice, and I'm saying, you don't have to believe that. So when somebody does say that to you, the way to respond is to just think in your mind, okay, maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. Now let's move on. As soon as you start making decisions or shaping your theology or changing what you believe about the Bible based on someone, then you're missing what, what Peter's saying here. We have something more sure. We have the Word. Did Peter hear the voice of God? Yeah, he did. Did you hear the voice of God? Maybe. Or Maybe you were crazy, or maybe you were dreaming, or maybe you were anesthetic as a three-year-old. Or maybe you're lying. So please don't ask me to make a decision about what I believe in my theology based on that claim. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out so that you may be equipped and complete for every good work. You don't need, if you want to make a decision, go to the scriptures. Go to someone who knows the scriptures better than you and make them point into the scriptures where that wisdom that they're giving you is found. You're not missing out. That's the main thing I want to leave you with today. You're not, because I felt like I was missing out. When I was a young believer, there was a, a young man in our. Circles, who was going around giving this testimony, that he had played volleyball with Jesus. He played beach volleyball with Jesus and the two um, selectors of the national team in the parking lot of his church. And he came and he spoke at our school. And I eventually ended up attending that youth group. And I pulled him aside one night and said, please tell me that testimony. And he was like, yeah, I'd love to. And he told it with such sincerity and such vividness. And he said, oh, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And I walked out there. And there was this beach volleyball thing set up in the parking lot. And there were these two guys that didn't, you know, and, and they start playing with, with Jesus. And I said, what did Jesus look like? Oh, he had long hair. and It was in a ponytail. And, and I was like, I knew it. I'm going to tell my parents I can have long hair. And, I mean, it was like I was eating it up. but I left there feeling what's wrong with me that I don't get to see Jesus am I not holy enough am I not praying enough I, I, I'm, I'm missing out all these other people in, the, in those, the, that youth group there were a lot of people claiming lots of different experiences like I want an experience they're all having these experiences Well, I want to I leave this with you today you're not missing out they are they're ignoring the more sure word for something that's subjective, something that's fakeable, something that's, that's untouchable, unverifiable, unsure. So I just want to end with three very quick application points. When someone claims to have spoken to God or Jesus appeared to them or whatever, that God spoke to them, th- this is how you respond. Firstly, I want, to, I want to caveat, it depends on your relationship with them. Sometimes somebody says something to me and my response is, not my monkey, not my zoo. <laughs> you know? Like, you're not in my flock, you're not in my church, I'm not responsible for fixing your theology, your pastor is. We don't have that relationship. But sometimes it's a person in your family or a friend, or they are in your church, or someone in your sphere that you feel, this person trusts me, they're going to take this from me, and it is actually my responsibility to help them. How, how do you approach these things? Firstly, I'm just going to give you what I, I do kind of what I've built up through experience here is I try to discern if when they say God spoke to me do they mean audibly or do they just mean God guided me to this decision because I, I have a category for that and sometimes people say I mean shorthand If you, people ask me all the time you're from South Africa how did you end up coming to Mobile short answer God told me to come long answer I mean, how long have you got? <laughs> That's a long answer. The short is, God made it clear to me that I need to do this. How? Well, through, through verses in Scripture about what my priorities should be and, and my wife's input and my elder's input and your elder's input and um, opportunity and the government was on board, which we weren't sure about for a while, um, and circumstances and desire and counsel I mean, I must have called two dozen people who had either been in this church, pastored this church, or was directly related to this church before we considered anything. Counsel. So you get counsel, and you get spiritual guidance, and you look at the authority of your elders. and, And if you just say, God spoke to me, and that's what you mean, I'm okay with that. That's shorthand between Christians. So I try to discern that. I just leave it alone if that's what they say. But if they mean God actually spoke to them, go buy a boat, a big one. Don't worry about the debt. Then I'm like, "Ah, okay, what do I do? So after I've done that, step one is, are they talking about a mystical, miraculous experience? Step two, if they are, then first thing I try to do in my heart is I try to assume the best about them, that they're not lying to me to try to get something out of me or money or prestige or attention. I just try to assume that they are just imagining things. That this is just a vivid imagination and that's that's what they think happened to them. So they're not lying, they're just self-deceived. And so in that case, I'll pray for them, silently, otherwise it will be rude, that God would help them to trust the more sure word. That's what worked with me when I was in that confused thing. People prayed for me and the Lord helped me out of that. So discern if they're saying it, rep- what they mean is audible, or well, that they actually had this experience, to assume the best that they're not lying to you, um, and that they're just, they're self deceived. And then the third, and the reason I do that is because it helps me relate to them less belligerently. You know, like, I don't wanna be pugnacious, I don't wanna be polemic, I don't wanna fight with them about this. I wanna be gracious. So if I just assume they're not lying, that helps me. If I think they're lying, I'm just like, oh, liar. Um, so, so I believe the best. And then the, the final thing I do is I try to talk to them about what the Bible actually says about that situation. So. God told me to do this thing. And I said, God told me to quit my job because I have this terrible boss. Okay, well, let's have a look at some scriptures. I, I usually just say, wow. Let's see what God says in his word that lines up with what he told you. And let's go to some passages about that. And then I try to just bring the word of God to bear on that situation. And if you really want to hear the audible Word of God, I recommend to you the ESV read by Max McLean. It's very good. You just turn it up. It's, it's the Word of God, and it's read audibly. There you go. I was being funny, but anyway. Um, okay, so in conclusion, when, if and when Carlton Burpo recants and says that he was lying just like Alex Malarkey did, just like other people eventually come out of the closet and said, sorry, we were lying about that, what's that going to do to my faith? Nothing. I know heaven is for real, not because someone wrote a book about it, but because God wrote a book about it. (laughs) And whatever's in here, I'm required to believe, and whatever's not, I'm not, because we have something more sure, the more sure word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ who lived a life, we could never live, a life of righteousness and perfection. We thank you that you sent him to die and bear our sins on the cross. And that you conquered death and raised him from the grave so that we can live in new life as well. I pray that you would help us to have faith in your word and everything that we know about you that is true. And that we would be gracious and humble and patient with others. We're all on different um, stages in our walk with you. And I pray that you would continue to reveal to us truth through scripture and the leading of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.